Some of you will remember the story of a man called Michael Fagan. You may not remember his name, but you will recall the incident. 2nd of February 1982, the Queen woke in her bed in Buckingham Palace to find Fagan apparently sitting on the end of her bed. The reports say that he, this was his second attempt at intrusion to the palace. As a month earlier, he had climbed up a drain pipe. And although he'd startled a housemaid on that occasion, by the time the security arrived, he had disappeared. And Fagan claims that he had wandered about the palace, eating cheese and crackers, which he had found in a cupboard somewhere, viewing some of the royal portraits, And then when he got a bit tired, he rested for a while on the throne. And he then drank half a bottle of wine before he got tired and left the palace. And then on this second occasion, the 2nd of July at around 7am, Fagan scales Buckingham Palace's 14 foot high perimeter wall. It's topped with revolving spikes and and barbed wire. And he then shimmies on up a drain pipe before wandering into the Queen's bedroom at about 7.15am. And at this point, there are a variety of stories. But suffice to say, when Fagan was arrested, um, this was deemed a civil offence rather than a criminal offence. And so Fagan was not charged for trespassing in the Queen's bedroom, in the palace. He was, however, charged with theft for the half bottle of wine. But these charges were actually eventually dropped when he was committed for a psychiatric evaluation. Now, the law has since changed, and and breaking into the palace, if any of you were thinking of doing it, is now going to be a criminal offence. But you see, what I think is interesting in this is that, that Fagan was charged with the criminal offence of theft for drinking half a bottle of wine. Now imagine if someone broke into your house or mine. I wonder if the police caught them. Would they even bother charging them with theft if all they did was wander about the house, uh, not that it would take very long for them to wander about our hobbit house, um, and but if they consumed half a bottle of wine, would the police charge them with theft? I'm not sure that they would. In fact, I'm not sure that, uh, that there wouldn't really be much of a follow-up if that was all that happened. But you see, because this was the royal palace, And the queen, Fagan, was charged with theft. So what has this to do with the laws of property that we have just read? Park Fagan and the queen for a few minutes. And I will come back to that. Now I suspect some of you are probably, after we have already read these these, uh, laws, thinking, oh, how are we going to deal with this? This is all about law. It's going to put me to sleep. I'm not going to intend going through this line by line, um, going through each of these, uh, these, these verses. But I do want to highlight 
the three main sections first of all, and then draw out two main points for us and what it means, the outworking of this. First of all, remember where we are. Israelites are in Sinai. They have been rescued from Egypt. Moses has encountered God on the mountain and has given them the Decalogue, those Ten Commandments that, they, that I, I just briefly spoke to the kids about. And Moses has now returned up the mountain to receive from God all of this detailed legislation that's going to guide Israel's lives. And these laws in Exodus chapter 22, verses 1 to 15, the verses that we read, are part part of what is known as the, the Book of Covenant. But in these 15 verses that we have read today, we see some of the implications of the, the working out of the Eighth Commandment, which is, do not steal. And you see, we all tend to think of the, the, the law of stealing really quite simplistically. But in these 15 verses, we are seeing something of the breadth of how we need to think and how actually we need to think theologically as Christians and how this applies to our life. See, in these laws, we see how we should treat the property of others. And so there are basically three scenarios that are detailed and they can be summarized briefly like this. Verses 1 to 4 is one block. And in verses 1 to 4, you will see there are actually three separate cases that are identified. They deal with different circumstances relating to theft. Case 1, to steal and either kill or sell uh, on livestock means the thief had to pay back five times or four times, depending on which type of livestock. The thief has intentionally set out to make material gain someone else's expense and so if caught then he has to do much more than simply pay back the value but he has to compensate the owner for loss case two then in verses one to four if the theft occurs at night and the thief is killed during the theft then actually this is saying that's okay now maybe you want to go back and to the sixth commandment which is do not murder But the point here is that this is the middle of the night. And the defender can't see the intruder. They don't know if the intruder is carrying a heavy weapon, for example. But on the other hand, if the theft is during daylight and the intruder is killed, that isn't okay. He is guilty of bloodshed. And so it continues, if the thief is alive, then he can be sold to cover the cost of the stolen goods and compensation. And then case three in verses one to four, if the thief is found with the stolen animal, then he only has to pay back double plus the return of the stolen animal. It's all in some ways really quite logical. Verses five to six then, we have two cases which relate to the damage of property and negligence. Both cases are accidents. Case one in these two verses, if the animals have strayed on a farmer's land, then the owner of the animals needs to make good from his own farm to pay up for the damage. 
You know, there weren't big fences uh, that kept the fields separated at this time. And so it wasn't enough for a farmer to just say, I am sorry, it was an accident. He actually needed to make good for the damage. And then case two in verses five to six is not about livestock, but it's about damage to the fields which are caused through negligence, negligence with fire. And that was where the fire was being allowed to spread and destroy the crops. And this could have happened because the farmers would have set their fields on fire to clear the ground. But if they weren't careful, that the fire could then spread to the edge of the field, and that's where there were thorn bushes, and then it could spread into the neighbor's field. And so we read that, again, compensation needs to be paid. It has been negligence. And then verses 7 to 15, third block of these uh, 15 verses. We have, in these uh, verses, we have laws that relate to property that weren't given to some, that they were given to someone for, uh, for safekeeping. They didn't have banks in those days. They didn't have big safes to put things in. And so if you were going off traveling for a while um, about your business, then you would leave your valuable goods with a neighbor for safekeeping. Everything was fine if when you came back that they were all still there. But if they weren't, what was to happen? Well, the thief was to pay double if caught. But what happens when the thief isn't caught? Then suspicion falls on the friend who is holding the goods in safekeeping. And God says that this then needs to be brought before other people to judge. That is, the local elders. And if they decide the friend was the thief, then he pays the normal compensation. But if it wasn't him, then the original owner just had to live with it. The same thing applies with livestock. And so we also then see a number of other circumstances just where there is negligence involved. And so the person who is supposed to be the safe pair of hands has to make restitution and pay compensation. And this is also developed further when there's, there's borrowing involved and, and a neighbor lends livestock. You see, key thing in all of this is these laws were never intended to cover every case and circumstance. They were there as guiding principles. And the question for all of us is, do they apply exactly like this? Or what do we take out of these judicial laws from this, the book of Covenant? I think there are two key themes that we can take from this and apply to ourselves today. The first is God's righteous justice. You know, when we read these laws, whether the, the, the ones today or those that Bobby looked at last week or that Tom will be looking at next week, some of it might seem very harsh. And some of it seems very fair. But we need to look at these laws that God gave to the Israelites in the context of the time that they were given. They have left slavery in Egypt And now they are free people. 
God has made clear to the Israelites that, that when someone suffers a loss, then there is to be restitution. There's to be compensation. Just as in chapter 21, verses 1 to 4, it is made clear that, that slaves are to be set free after a period of time. And you see, in all of this, we see the similarity that echo back to what had happened with the Israelites. God had set them free. And likewise, then, these verses of, uh, of chapter 22, where there is restitution, we also see a similarity with what happened whenever the Israelites were leaving Egypt. And they demanded articles of gold, silver, and clothing from the Egyptians. If you can look them up, uh, Exodus chapter 3, verses 21 to 22, chapter 11, verse 2, chapter 12, verses 35 to 36. God was saying that they could have restitution, compensation for their time in slavery. They were being compensated for that exploitation. And so God is setting out these similar principles of justice for people to live by. God was laying down principles of justice. And one of the key things in these principles of justice is they were very different from those principles of justice of neighboring countries. Countries of that, uh, the area of the Near East at that time. And we know something of how those other countries applied the law. There's one set of laws called, called the, the laws of uh, Hammurabi. I'm struggling to get my words today. The laws of Hammurabi. Um, And they were very different to these laws that God has set out for his people, the Israelites, his covenant people. God's law for theft did not lead to the death penalty. But you see, under the laws of Hamuburai, not only did the death penalty apply for theft, it also made a difference depending on who the victim was. To steal from a king or from, from a temple was much more serious than it was to steal from an ordinary member of society. Hence my story about Michael Fagan stealing a half bottle of wine from the queen. To steal from, from the royalty under the laws of, of neighbouring countries at this time in Exodus would have led to the death penalty in those neighbouring countries. But to steal from under God's laws would have led to a penalty of 10 to to 30 times. Sorry, not under God's laws. Under, for a normal person, would have led to 10 or 30 times. The neighboring laws were different depending on who you were, who the victim was. If you were a king or queen, death penalty for theft. If you were a normal member of society then restitution of 10 or 20 or 30 times. It wasn't the same rules for everyone. But God, in his laws, that he gave to the people of Israelite, is saying these are the same rules for everyone. They apply to regardless of who you are. 
There is no difference who you steal from. It doesn't matter if you steal from a king or a queen or just an ordinary member of society. The same rules apply. God is already applying in these rules what he's already done in the Ten Commandments. And that is that all people are equal. God's justice is equal for everyone. And you see, if we carry that through, that is still the case. Because when it comes to God judging us, it will not matter whether we are a king or a queen, a prime minister or a high-ranking politician, or somebody of great influence in society, or somebody that is in worldly terms, a nothing in life. Someone that may be viewed as insignificant in life. It will not matter when God judges us. He will apply those same levels of equity when he judges us. We will all be judged equally. Our position in society, our wealth, will make no difference at all. How will God judge you? But you see, we also see in this, in these passages, one of the takeaways is that we are to be a distinctive people. We are to be different. God was saying to the Israelites, you are my people, my children, and you are to be different from your neighbours. I am giving you these laws that make you different from your neighbours. You are to treat people differently from now on when compared to how others do that. See, in all this law, in the three chapters, 21 to 23, we see God's passionate care that he demonstrated for the Israelites as he rescued them from Egypt. And God wants this same justice and care to underpin the lives of his people in relation to others. Whether that's how slaves were treated or how a thief was to be treated or as we'll see in the next chapter how foreigners were to be treated or the welfare for the poor. God was showing a different type of love for his people. We are called to do the same. These laws, you know, for the most part, remain to teach us general principles of fairness, restitution, and equity. But you see, they don't apply exactly anymore as they are written. Why do I say that? Well, it's because once Christ died on the cross, these judicial laws, along with the ceremonial laws regarding worship, that were set out as part of God's covenant they're no longer enforced today. Because with Christ, there is a new covenant. The Westminster Confession of Faith, it's a subordinate uh, standard of our denomination. What it means is we, we live by the Bible, but the Westminster Confession sets out and helps us understand some of the theology in the Bible and how it applies sets out our thinking and understanding of the Bible. And all ministers and elders at their time of licensing and ordination subscribe to what it says in the Westminster Confession. 
Paragraph 19.4, I thought it was appropriate to quote, quote the actual paragraph given that we're dealing with law. But paragraph 19.4 of the confession, when it's put into modern language, this is what it says. To the people of Israel, as a civil entity, he, that is God, gave various judicial laws, which expired at the time their state expired. Therefore, these judicial laws place no obligation upon anyone now. And I think this next bit is critical. Except as they embody general principles of justice. Chad Van Dixhorn, in his book, uh, Confessing the Faith, explains, where he says, In addition to ceremonial laws, God gave the people of Israel as a political body a set of judicial laws. These laws can be found in many places, but one of the most contrasting traded collections is in these passages that we've read in Exodus. Like the ceremonial laws, these judicial laws are no longer in force for God's people today, nor for any of God's people since the time of Christ and the destruction of the ancient Jewish nation in the days of the apostles. But he continues, what is in force are the laws of men and we submit ourselves to their civil ordinances for the Lord's sake. See, I think what we see in this is that God wants us to be people of love and justice and that we submit to the authority in our land where we live. We are to seek to be good and holy people. We are to live a righteous life. We are to seek to serve God by being good citizens. Applying justice in all our dealings with family, friend and foe. Being fair and equitable. We are to live the way Christ wants us to live. You know, we all know that story of Zacchaeus. Uh, Luke chapter 19, where, um, and how he came to faith in Christ. And after the people had given off um, about Jesus spending time with this sinner, we read um, in verse 8 of chapter 19, Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. He wasn't required to do this because the law had changed with Christ. But he still was changed. He was changed by Jesus. And therefore he believed that he needed to make restitution for what he had done wrong. He was prepared to make good on the things that he had done wrong in his life. We too are to be people who are changed by Jesus. We are to live like Christ. We are to take the principles that come from these laws of equity and fairness and apply this to our lives. Let me give one short example just to finish. Someone drives into the back of your car. The car is damaged. The insurance pays out. But you have not been hurt. Insurance handling company starts asking questions. Surely you have been hurt. Do you not have a twinge in in your neck? That twinge in your neck, you know, that's probably the result of the car accident. And even though the car only drove into you at 15 miles an hour, then you start to get phone calls from all of those dodgy uh, companies that are trying to chase you to make a claim. What do you do? 
take a personal injury claim or not. You could do with the few thousand pounds that the insurance would pay out for personal injury. Sure, you've been paying insurance for years. You have never claimed anything. You're entitled to this we claim for, for some personal injury. I know this is not black and white. But you see, when we take these laws from that God gave to the Israelites, and we apply those principles of equity and fairness, honesty and integrity to our living today, then we will do things differently. We will be a different people from those that live around us. We've been saved and changed by Christ's death and resurrection. And he calls us to live lives that are worthy of people that have been saved by Christ. Let's pray.